This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Off the top in this hour, I want to take a look at a fascinating new book that explores the science around food. And as a society, we really seem obsessed with food. I remember hearing the term foodies 10 or 20 years ago. But there's a lot of science that goes into how we perceive the quality of food, how food tastes, more than we realize. Maybe this is relevant to the discussion we had just recently about tipping. Because maybe there are all kinds of factors at play in terms of how you perceive a meal at a restaurant. The lighting, the music playing, uh, the name of the, the menu item, the shape of the plates, the cutlery, all kinds of different things go into how we perceive food. And it's the topic explored in a new book. It's called Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating. Joining us on the line is the author of this book. His name is Charles Spence. He's an experimental psychologist at the University of Oxford. Charles, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Aside from it being the title of your book, let me ask you first, what is gastrophysics? So it's kind of a new approach to thinking about food and what makes food taste good, memorable, what biases the choices we make. Um, and it's kind of a combination of gastronomy, so it's kind of real food experiences, nice food, things that we enjoy eating. And the physics comes from psychophysics, which is a branch of psychology where you try and understand what, what really drives our experience and not just what we say, but what factors like the cutlery, the lighting, the music, the everything else that affects our, our, our enjoyment of food and drink. There's a lot of science on this, and it seems like it is science that uh, the industry, uh, the food industry, the beverage industry, that they're certainly well aware of. Uh, that's right. They're becoming increasingly interested, I think, in the mind of those uh, whom they provide food for, in part because they've been trying to reduce some of the unhealthier ingredients in our kind of favorite products, the sugar, salt, and fat, and so on. But when they do that, consumers very often kind of... Uh, uh, call in, dial in, say, what are you doing? You're changing our favorite brands. Put them back the way they were. So right. these companies know that they need to reduce some of the unhealthy stuff, but how to do it in a way that people don't perceive. I think that's where um, uh, the gastrophysics comes in when you think about something as simple as changing the shape of a chocolate might make it taste sweeter. Then you're into some uh, potentially useful t- terrain around uh, nudging us all, I think, towards better food behaviors uh, moving forward. Because I think we like to convince ourselves that it's all about how something tastes. It doesn't matter the color, doesn't matter how it's packaged, doesn't matter what it's called, that what matters in the end is the taste. But are we kidding ourselves? Uh, I think we most certainly are. All of us, uh, psychologists and gastrophysicists, the, the consumer, the food critic alike, we all think that we can kind of taste food and we feel it almost as that stuff that's in our mouths. But in fact, all our senses are involved. Uh, not only what we taste in the mouth, but, but maybe smell is estimated to be about 75 to 95% of the experience. With all the fruity, the meaty, the herbal, that's all coming from the nose. That's what's lost when you have a head cold and your nose is blocked. Um, and beyond the smell is also the sight of food, setting expectation, like color, uh, and artistic plating, then there's a texture, and even the sound, those things we like, like crunchy, crispy, crackly, creamy, carbonated, and squeaky. That's all really coming from the sounds that we hear when we bite into or, or consume products. I think all the senses are there, and they all meet for the first time in your mind, not in your mouth, and that's kind of why the gastrophysics is so much about that, that the mind and the brain of the person doing the tasting. And I remember, you know, I think it was 25 years ago, the way people reacted to Crystal Pepsi, the idea of a clear cola. And, I mean, you talk about in the book orange mouthwash or green ketchup. 
if something doesn't look the way we think it should, even if it tastes the same, it's just, it, it's not right. It doesn't seem right to us. <laughs> uh, so it depends a little bit where you are. So if you're in a modernist restaurant, uh, kind of a, a cutting-edge mixology uh, cocktail bar, then you're a little bit happier when... The, to accept when things look one way but taste a different way because you think you're in the hands of an experienced designer who knows what they're doing and it's deliberate. When you go to the supermarket and you buy that drink that looks clear, it tastes power, say, then you're in a very different space and then you think, there's something wrong here. I, I was expecting this taste and I got something different. And that leads to kind of disconfirmation of expectation. And that's kind of something that's kind of negatively valenced when you're saying, I've got this in my mouth, I'm about to swallow it, but it's not what I thought. It could be poisonous, it could be dangerous, and hence it's kind of a bad thing to do. So the clear uh, cola failed, because I think because whenever you see a fizzy clear drink in a glass, say, your mind naturally wanders to maybe uh, lemonade or just carbonated water. So if you're going to put a new color in your food in the marketplace, then best pick a color that hasn't been used before, and that's where kind of that blue raspberry flavor has been so successful. It stands out on the shelf, the only blue drink in the kind of a fruit drinks aisle, uh, but it's also a color that doesn't naturally connote any flavor, so you have to sit there and say, hmm, I wonder what that is. In that open mindset, you can, uh, you can enjoy it more. So some of this is conditioning. We've been conditioned to expect certain things to be a certain way. Absolutely, um, but that it's conditioning doesn't mean it's uh, not, by the time we're adults, kind of pretty hardwired in us. Um, and that in fact, I think all we're really born with as far as food and drink are concerned is a liking for sweet taste, a disliking for bitter taste that might signal poison. And everything else, we kind of learn all the aromas of foods like the smell of freshly ground coffee, uh, creamy aromas, fruity aromas, those things are all learnt through exposure and through conditioning. And you say, okay, that smell normally goes with a caffeine hit and maybe a bit of sweetness. And then it, that smell comes to be liked. And then as adults now, we find that if I were to add, say, vanilla uh, f uh, aroma to a food or a caramel aroma, it will make things taste sweeter because of this conditioning. We've learned that caramel and vanilla smells normally signal sweetness in food and hence can be used to enhance it when, say, we're eating something very cold like an ice cream when effectively our taste buds have turned off. When it comes to marketing as well, that's a powerful tool. There's an example in the book. You talk about what was once known as Patagonian toothfish, which wouldn't sound appealing to people. But when someone came up with the idea of calling it Chilean sea bass, all of a sudden it was much more appealing. That's right. And I think um, there's a 1,200% increase in sales of this sustainable healthy uh, monster of the deep um, that uh, doesn't look very appealing when you see a picture of it. doesn't sound very appealing as a Patagonian toothfish, and yet Chilean sea bass, suddenly everyone is ordering from the menu. You can almost feel yourself doing it. If you were in a restaurant and saw that those two different names, I think we'd all have very different experiences and responses. And, and that increase in sales was in, in North America, in the UK, in Australia and beyond. And I think it just hints at the potential power of naming, that's all part of the experience of food and drink, what we call things, how we describe them. And if you get the name right, you can enhance the experience of those who are eating, maybe increase sales to probably not always up to 1,200%, like in the, in the um, Patagonian toothfish example, but certainly there's a lot of scope there to, to improve the way food is described, to enhance the expectations, enhance the experience. Right. And certainly when it comes to restaurants, look, it helps to have a, a good chef and, and capable servers, but in terms of you know, the description of your, your dishes, the, the music that's playing, the ambiance, the, the cutlery, the plates. These things all impact how we perceive our meals, don't they? Uh, they all certainly do. But, but I mean, but it's kind of a, a curious that none of us really 
realise or, or believe it's true. We all think, I can just taste the food on a plate. I know what it tastes like. And I will not be influenced by all this kind of stuff, by the lighting, the music, the chair I'm sitting on. And it's kind of the job of the gastrophysics researcher to show how all the other factors really do influence our experience. And one of my favourite examples from the book is from a study in the UK where they played either French or um, German music in a supermarket and just looked at what kinds of wines people bought. And when the French music was playing, the majority of people all went for French wine. When the German music was playing, suddenly <laughs> everyone's switching to buying German wine. And yet when you ask when they come away from the counter, did that music playing today affect your choice? No one thinks it does. And yet the data shows otherwise, and it's, it's kind of the job of, of the research to say how many of these things off the plate, out of the glass, really do uh, affect us. Right, and, and smell is logical. I think we all understand. I mean, when we smell something good, you know, our mouth starts to water. But the, the connection between hearing and taste, that, that seems counterintuitive. Uh, indeed. Well, on the one hand, um, I guess we all know that we like crispy, crunchy, crackly. That's what we kind of drives us towards snack foods. Um, but often we think of that as that's what foods feel like or their texture in the mouth. But to the extent that we don't really have uh, sort of... Uh, receptors, touch receptors in our teeth, really a lot of that information is coming from the sounds we hear as we bite into foods. So that sort of makes sense, but when you go one stage further and you start say, talking about sonic seasoning, which is a really kind of uh, exciting new area where you can deliberately pick pieces of music that have certain properties, pieces of music that have lots of piano, tinkling piano in them, will probably make your food taste just that bit sweeter. If I pick something with very uh, low-pitched or brassy instruments, a deep uh, baritone voice singing, that that will bring out bitterness in foods. This, as you say, is unintuitive, but there's more and more research in it, and there are chefs, there are composers, there are gastrophysicists all getting very excited about this whole new way of, kind of connecting the senses and doing so to hopefully, if I play sweet music, maybe I can reduce a little bit the sugar in the foods that I serve without changing the experience of the consumer. And that's a, a very powerful idea that some cafes and restaurants are already starting to take up. Well, and yeah, and I think you hint on why this, this is really important because, um, you know, we, we talk so much these days about how much we eat and what our eating habits are. And if we can understand how things like how many people we're eating with or the size of our plates and, and how these things impact our eating habits and how much we eat, that, that's really powerful information. Uh, indeed, um, and, and, and while many of the examples in the book come from kind of fancy restaurants and high-end uh, modernist cuisine, uh, the real hope is that by sort of sharing the insights that are coming out from the research, there are things that any one of us can use, be it at home, uh, to nudge us towards maybe better eating. So as you mentioned, something as simple as serving yourself from a smaller plate or from a smaller bowl can help trick your brain into thinking you're eating more. Something as simple as if you're going to have some snack food, some crisps, some, some biscuits, some chocolate, some popcorn, and put it on a red plate or serve it in a red bowl, that will probably result in you eating uh, a little bit less. Uh, and wherever you can, you can concentrate on the sensations that we turn the TV off and really sort of sniff and inhale the aromas of the foods you're eating because that's one of the key triggers that our brain uses to know when it's full, to have how many food sensations we've had and that's why TV is so that it distracts us from our eating um, and leads very often to people eating as much as a third more than they would without that kind of distraction around. What do you think about the, the impact of technology? I mean, you know, what example that comes to mind and how we perceive food is the idea of, of lab-grown meat, for example. Mm -hmm. Or you talk about in the book the idea of you know, robot chefs, for example. How are we going to process all of that? 
Um, I think there are changes afoot. Um, and you know, we were, maybe most of us were brought up with this kind of notion, you don't you know, mix food and technology, keep them separate, you don't want to spill your drink over your keyboard, just keep these things apart, there's food and there's technology, they're both wonderful, but they're not related. And that's all being challenged these days um, as technology is brought to the table. And we see it at one end with um, those sort of uh, top chefs out there who are starting to get rid of their plates and actually serve their, their dishes from on top of a tablet, so that they can change the colour, they can tell stories about the food from the screen of a tablet under, uh, underneath the food. Uh, we see you know, all that amazing technology in most of our pockets, the mobile phones, the smartphones. That's amazing technology, and could we use that in some way to enhance the experience of food? This is all possible. I think it's coming. When it comes to you know, 3D, fin print, 3D printed food, that's something that's got technology and food. There's a lot of hype and a lot of talk about that, but I'm not so convinced uh, that we'll all be having a 3D printer to print out our dinners anytime soon. Uh, and you mentioned the robot chefs. That's a really interesting one for, for, for me uh, because the price of robot chefs, robot cocktail makers is coming down year on year. Uh, people are promising to ship these to your home for $60,000, $70,000 by 2018. But do we want it? Do we really want it? Uh, or, or is there something about the, um, the kind of the, uh, uh, the inconsistency of the chef that when, when there's a personal touch involved, things might turn out better some days than others, but that is surely what we want. If we wanted the same thing day in, day out, then wouldn't we just buy a processed meal instead? So I'm really not quite sure what the purpose of that robot chefs are, other than to demonstrate you know, what technology can do. I really don't think we'll be, it will be seeing it at mainstream. Right. Uh, so then in terms of, of what people, what you want people to take from this book, I think certainly understanding ourselves and understanding uh, how we as a society, our eating habits are what they are. Do you also think that this can empower consumers then to, if we understand the psychology, we can understand the ways in which maybe we're being tricked and, and manipulated? Uh, that's certainly the hope. I mean, when, when, when one sees some of the examples about how easily our judgments can be swayed by things that seem irrelevant like lighting or music playing in the background in the supermarket or the smells that are released, uh, one response is to be worried. Wow, I didn't realize that was the case. And then to say, well, I don't want to know anything about this. It's like manipulation. It's trickery in the marketplace. People are going to use this to, to make me eat more, to buy more than I otherwise would. But I think that's not really the way forward. It's, it's to understand what the science shows, uh, the factors that really do bias our choices and our perception, uh, and then hopefully use those insights uh, in order to, to, to get us all into better places, to understand how the environment affects us, to really start to worry when we see all that food porn on television, what, it, what it's doing to our waistlines, when we go into hotels or, or um, petrol stations and our noses are assaulted by the smells of, of muffins and coffee and stuff. Is that something we should worry about? Because it's biasing our behavior, I think so. Uh, and hopefully from reading the book, we'll get a better sense of what really matters and how you can take the insights and use them uh, wherever you are, whatever you're serving, to whomever, in order to deliver what you want, be it eating a little bit less but not being hungry all day long, or be it delivering a memorable meal, or be it even just you know, getting your kids to eat their vegetables when everything else seems to have failed. Yeah, well, that certainly matters, too. Absolutely. It's fascinating stuff. The book is called Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating. Charles Spence, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate That's that. Pleasure. Thank you. All right, take care. Charles Spence, he is an experimental psychologist at the University of Oxford, uh, focusing his research on the senses and the brain and how we interpret these subtle cues of food. And uh, so that science is laid out in great detail and uh, fascinating detail. The book is called Gastrophysics, the New Science of Eating.
Our number here, 403-974-TALK. That's 974-8255. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.